Well, happy Mother's Day at all of our Summit Campus locations. I told you on Easter weekend that there are two weekends a year that I allow my mother to dress me. This is the other one. So happy Mother's Day to all of you. Um, open your Bibles if you got them this weekend. and I hope that you brought them to Judges chapter four. Yes, you heard correctly. I did not say the book of Romans, which I know is disappointing for many of you because you got your Romans journal, which is awesome. And you are so excited about Romans chapter eight because it is arguably the greatest chapter in all the Bible. And we are going to get to it, I promise. But I wanted to briefly interrupt our series on Romans for just a week because it's Mother's Day. And I wanted to do something special for mothers on this weekend and really all ladies here at our church. You know, if you go back and study the origins of Mother's Day, it goes back to the fourth century when um, the Christian churches at the time decided there was one Sunday of the calendar year where they wanted to acknowledge, get this, the spiritual mothers in the church. It wasn't really focused on mothers in the home so much as it was the role that, that the church plays in our lives and in, in helping us uh, develop the right uh, form, the right way spiritually. And so it, this really is for all ladies, um, a very special day because it celebrates the role that ladies have in the kingdom of God. And this passage we're going to look at in Judges 4 is a passage that that highlights the important role that women play. Um, now, full disclosure, I actually taught through this passage about four years ago here at the Summit Church, and it was pretty groundbreaking for us then, but I've had to rework it recently for some other audiences I've had to teach for and realized as I was doing that, that there's a lot in here that I believe is timely again for us. Um, and so I wanted to go through it again. And um, furthermore, it also speaks to some things that God has been leading me to work on in the Southern Baptist Convention as I serve for this year and possibly the next one in the capacity uh, of president. Uh, the convention is just, a, the actual convention is just a few weeks away. And so a lot of this has been on my heart. And so I wanted to take time to, to walk you through it again. Um, I listen, Summit Church, I hope you'll be encouraged um, by God's grace God um, is in allowing me to serve as the president of the SBC at this time. God is allowing what happens here at the Summit Church, some of what we experience here at the Summit Church through God's movement, he's allowing that to be an influence on and an encouragement to other churches around the nation. Uh, we saw that first, that Who's Your One campaign. That was something that, that we've done here at the Summit Church for a few years. And um, we were able to take it this past year to 47,000 churches in the SBC, many of whom are participating in that. It's led to countless professions of faith across the United States. Um, then there's the go-to initiative, which is what we do with our college students and, and, um, and retirees here at the Summit Church, where we challenge them to give the first two years of their postgraduate life or their first two years of their retirement to going and living and serving on one of our church plants. Well, that's been taken national and now 47,000 churches in the SBC are participating in that as well. And so by God's grace, he's allowing what we experience here to be an influence on and an encouragement to others. And that includes what I'm going to share with you today. So all in all, let's just say it this way. I just really sensed, I believe the leadership of the Holy Spirit um, to step out of the book of Romans for just a week and to jump into a passage that highlights not only the value of mothers, but ladies in general in the kingdom of God. So is that okay if we do that? Uh, really, you, you have to be okay with it because I'm up here and I've got the microphone. But um, anyway, I'm getting your permission. If you got your Bible, Judges chapter four and five. Scholars have pointed out that one of Judges, the book of Judges primary themes is how God not only cares for the oppressed and the overlooked and the underappreciated, but he also uses the overlooked and appreciated and the oppressed 
to be the instruments for building his kingdom. There's no story that illustrates that probably better than the story we find in Judges chapter four, the story of Deborah. Let's just walk through the whole story because it really is a great one. By the way, if you're new to church, new to the Bible, the book of Judges gets its name, not because it's a series of court cases, like you know, an Old Testament version of Matlock or something like that. Um, it gets its name um, because judges were the names of the deliverers that God raised up after Israel wandered away from him to bring them back to God and then to deliver them from their enemies. They're called judges. And so um, Deborah is one of those judges. And we find her story in chapter four, verse one. Again, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. I think that's the way you pronounce that in Hebrew is Ehud. I would read it Ehud. But um, Ehud was the left-handed judge, uh, the South Paul judge who God delivered Israel through, but they began to wander after Ehud died. And so the Lord sold them again into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now, Sisera, Sisera, he's the bad guy in the story because he's the commander of the army of Jabin, the enemies of Israel. Um, the commander of the army, he had 900 chariots fitted with iron. These were like the Apache helicopters of the ancient world. They were the Abrams tanks. They were the most advanced weaponry of the time. They could mow down literally dozens of foot soldiers at once, and Israel doesn't have any of them. And this guy, Sisera, he's got 900 of them, which means that he's at a strategic, military, tactical advantage. And so, so Sisera and his army cruelly oppressed the Israelites for two decades. And Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. When, she, um, when the Israelites began to cry out to God for a deliverer, she sent for Barak and said to Barak, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go and take with you 10,000 men. And I promise I'll lead Sisera into your hands. And Barak said to her, well, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I ain't gonna go. So Deborah says, and you gotta read this with like a deep sigh and a roll of the eyes. She's like, all right, certainly I will go with you. But because of the course you're taking, the, the honor is not gonna be yours because the Lord is gonna deliver Sisera, not into your hands, but into the hands of a woman. Now, naturally we think, well, that's gotta be Deborah, right? She's the star woman. She's the wonder woman in this story, but not so fast. Because then the author inserts a seemingly random detail that I'll show you in a minute. Turns out not to be random at all. Verse 11, now Hebrew the Kenite had separated from the Kenites and had pitched his tent up by the oak in Zanaim, which is near Kadesh. You're reading the story and the plot's developing and all of a sudden you're like, oh, and by the way, there's this dude named Hebrew the Kenite and he just separates from his people and goes and lives out in the middle of the woods. And you're like, that's totally random. It's not random at all, I'll show you. First, let's go back to the story of Deborah. Um, verse 12, she directs Barak and the army down to a region at the, ba the base of Mount Tabor. The author tells us that this region is a river basin, which seems like another random detail, but that's actually gonna turn out to be really important also in a minute. Verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. We're going to find out in chapter five. Chapter five is like the, the song. It's the spoken word that Deborah wrote to celebrate the victory they experienced in chapter four. We're going to find out that the reason Sisera had to flee on foot was a sudden rainstorm had come and flooded the riverbank so that Sisera's 900 chariots of iron got stuck in the mud. 
What is remarkable about that is that this will all took place during the dry season when it literally never rained in this part of Israel. If Sisera had thought there had even been a chance of rain, he would never have taken his chariots down into this river basin. This would be like having a snowstorm here in the triangle in the middle of July. In other words, God worked a very simple little miracle, a rainstorm that turned Sisera's great advantage, his 900 chariots of iron into a severe disadvantage. They became literal dead weight. So now Sisera is fleeing to the wilderness on foot and he comes to the tent of Jael. This is not Jael, the father of Superman. That will be another great story. But this is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Remember that dude? The guy, the random guy in verse 11 that pitches his tent out in the middle of the woods. Well, now Sisera is fleeing on foot and he comes up to this tent. Remember all that stuff about God delivering Jael or God delivering Sisera into the hands of a woman? All right, watch this. Watch this. Verse 18, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him up with a blanket. I'm thirsty. He said, please give me some water. She didn't have any water, but she did happen to have a skin of milk. She opened up the skin of milk and she gave, she heated it up and she gave him a drink and she covered him up and she tucked him in. She was like, there, there now, big warrior man's really tired. Ought to take a nap. And she starts to sing him a lullaby. Well, then Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. By the way, I always wonder, was that last sentence really necessary? Like, I believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. I believe every word counts, but really, I feel like I would just assume that he died, right? And then next verse, she goes outside, she drops the hammer and says, nailed it, nailed it. And that's the end of the story, right? That's just a great story, right? Just a great story. So here's the question. What, what piercing truths can we learn from Deborah and Barak and Jael? See what I did there? See what I did there? Now, seriously, how can I hammer this home to you? Because I really need you to see what's at stake. Uh, I really need you to say, I got a list today of four things that I want to give you that you should learn from this story, but I'm hesitant to give it because you're like, I don't need it. I need another list. Like I need a hole in the head. Okay. All right. So I can do this all day long, but I'll get to it. Number one, number one, God equips both men and women for leadership and ministry. That's patently obvious from this story, is it not? This story reveals that even in a culture, even in a time period when men did literally everything of significance, everything in public, God used a woman, two women in fact, at a very pivotal moment in his kingdom. Deborah is called a prophet, a wise and respected leader in Israel. Now, some have speculated that the only reason Deborah was a prophet is because there was no men around to lead. Yet there is nothing in this passage that indicates that is the reason. In fact, we're told that she held court under her palm tree because God had given her divine wisdom. That was God's choice to give her that gift. That means it's God's decision, not simply the lack of better options. Others say that because the book of Judges describes a time of moral chaos in Israel, that Deborah's leadership is just another manifestation of that chaos. I would say though, on the contrary, most Old Testament scholars believe that Deborah is presented as a bright spot in the midst of all the chaos. And as with all Old Testament stories, we need to read Deborah's story through the lens of the New Testament and what the New Testament teaches us about the role and value of women in God's kingdom. And what you're seeing here in this story is a glimpse of how God wants things to be. Deborah is a woman filled with the spirit of God being used in the kingdom of God. 
in the New Testament, we're going to find that there is nothing to indicate that women in the church do not have access to the same leadership and teaching gifts that men do. In fact, there are many verses in the New Testament that affirm directly that they do have access to these gifts. Now, hear me. They do not use them in all the same roles that men use them in, but they have access to the same basic gifts. You see, there is a myth alive in certain parts of the church that men, men do the real and the significant work of ministry. And as such, they ought to be taught rich, deep theology. They ought to be taught leadership principles. Their gifts should be recognized, called out, celebrated, platform, and even paid for. While women's ministry, well, that should mainly be about, you know, how to be a good hostess and match the curtains with the pillows and how to use the Enneagram to diagnose your friend's relational problems and how to, you know, build clientele for your essential oil side hustle and all the different various things. Not that there's anything wrong with those as hobbies, but I'm just saying that for a lot of women's ministry, that acts like all there is for ladies. But see, here's where that breaks down for me. I did not marry a weak, superficial woman. In fact, she is what some would call high-spirited, okay? Uh, An Enneagram 7, in fact. Our first date involved a three-hour debate on Calvinism, which she won, okay? But I was predestined to lose that, so y'all, what could I do, okay? So um, she is not a, a, a superficial woman, and we are not raising our daughters as best we can. We're not raising them to be superficial women either, and I don't believe our churches should be raising those kinds of daughters as well. Now, having said that, at our church, we believe that both Old and New Testaments teach that there are certain positions in the church and in the home that God has appointed men to occupy, just like there are certain roles that only women can occupy. For example, in the Old Testament, women could not be priests. There is nothing in the story that challenges that. Deborah did not fashion herself a priestess. You also see in this story, you see hints of the fact that Deborah's not going to take upon herself a role um, just because she wants her or just because the men aren't doing a good job with it. In verse eight, when Barak won't lead the army, Deborah doesn't step up and say, all right, all right, all right, you weakling, I'll do it. If you won't do it, God had appointed Barak to do that, not her. And she doesn't start usurping roles that are not given to her just because she doesn't think the man is doing a very good job. Or you see in verse four, some scholars point out that Deborah is identified as a part of a house that is headed by her husband, Lapidoth. That's a very subtle way of showing you that she didn't consider herself the spiritual head of her home. She considered Lapidoth to be the head of the home. In the New Testament, Ephesians 5 in particular, Paul explains that because of the pattern that God laid down in creation, that men ought therefore to carry the burden of spiritual leadership in the home. And in 1 Timothy 2 and 3, Paul explains that this pattern laid down in creation also means that men bear responsibility for ultimate leadership and teaching in the church expressed in the office of, of elder or pastor. In the New Testament, those two things are the same, pastor or elder. That is not, Paul would say, to imply any kind of inferiority. In fact, Scripture says the opposite. Genesis 2 tells us that God created men and women equally in His image. Equally in His image, but differently in His image. The first word that's ever used for a woman in the Bible is the word edzer konegdo. And it means literally another of the same kind. She's of the same kind, which means she's made in the image of God just like he is and therefore equal to him, but she's not exactly the same. She's a little different. She's another of the same kind. The two genders are not exactly the same. 
When God saw the man, saw the male by himself, he said, not good. If he'd created a carbon copy of the male with slightly different plumbing, that would have been not good, not good. He created somebody that was a little different, somebody that would complement the strengths he had given to man so that the two together would be a more full representation of the image of God than one gender would be alone. They are complementary, not identical. That's where the term complementarianism comes from, which is the theological term that describes our approach to this, all right? So that said, nothing in the Old or New Testament discourages women from developing and utilizing ministry and leadership gifts that God puts into them. So again, I think there's a false dichotomy that's been put forward in the church. One side of that dichotomy is you believe there's no distinction of roles at all. That is a position called egalitarianism. It means everybody's all the same. Genders are the same, just slightly different in plumbing, but um, that's one side. Or the other side of the dichotomy, you believe women should only serve in behind the scenes roles or in the home because they just don't have the capacity or the calling to lead in public ways. I believe that we need to reject that dichotomy and adopt instead what the Bible puts forward. And that is distinctions of position and function in the body of Christ, but not distinctions of gifting, of dignity or of value. And so specifically to you ladies on this Mother's Day weekend, I wanna say three things, three things which I'm trying to inculcate into my own daughters. All right, letter A, God has a calling on your life. Yours is not simply to sit on the sidelines or to marry a man with a calling. You have a calling from God. The question is, have you discerned what that calling is and are you living it out? Like Deborah, God has a specific role for you in his kingdom. He's given you specific gifts. He's given you the ability to discern and hear from the Holy Spirit and he's given you gifts to use. Have you done that? Here's letter B, you can and should take initiative in following God. I've seen a lot of women who never take initiative or spiritual responsibility for themselves. And honestly, listen, I say this not to rebuke any of you ladies. If anything, I want to affirm you and I want to release you. I've seen certain ladies in our church who are entirely too dependent on men around them to make decisions for them. In one sense, wives and daughters can be rightly dependent on the men that God puts in their lives. But ladies have the capability to hear and discern direction from the Holy Spirit. Y'all, isn't that what we see in Deborah? Here you see in Deborah, a leader of the highest caliber, the wisest and most courageous person in all of Israel. In Titus, Paul is gonna talk about the importance of spiritual mothers in the life of the church. I just stop and I think, how important was my mother, the role that she played in my life? How much wisdom did she speak into me? My mom was not simply there to uh, to just to support my dad as he spoke wisdom into my life. In fact, you could argue that the majority of sermons that I've heard in my life came from the lips of my mother in the home. She preached to me more than anybody, right? She imparted more wisdom to me than any other human being. I would not be half of the man I am today if it were not for her wisdom and her leadership and her initiative. Well, in the same way, God calls every woman in the church to these kinds of formative relationships in the lives of others whether or not they have children in the home or not. Okay, that's letter B. Letter C, you can do all of this while respecting God's order, just like you see Deborah do here, refusing to take positions that God had not assigned to her or positions that God had assigned to men. One of the requests that I have written down in my prayer journal for my daughters is that they grow up to be Deborah's. That's literally how I have it written, their name. And then it will say, Lord, help them grow up to be Deborah's because the church needs a lot more Deborah's. 
We need Deborahs in the home, speaking courage into children and courage into their husbands. We need Deborahs in ministry. Deborahs that are guiding us with their wisdom the way that Deborah was guiding Israel. Deborahs who are calling out the giftings of others and and supporting them and and guiding them as they give and pray and go. We need more Deborahs in society who lead and teach with wisdom and courage and faith. And I think those of us who work in the church, those of us who are professional, so to speak, we got to ask ourselves a very uncomfortable question. And that is, if we have been as committed to raising up Deborahs in the church as we have been to raising up Gideons and Samsons. Right, by the way, we could probably do with a, a few less Samsons just for the record. But um, have we been as committed to raising up Deborahs as we have Gideons? Right, that's a question we've got to ask. We know that we've got to look for places to develop and utilize her teaching and leadership gifts. Because y'all, after all, the focus of scripture is not on what she cannot do. The focus in scripture is on what she can't and what she must do. So here at the Summit Church, we have explored, for example, what are ways that that she can lead in the church that do not violate the spirit of what Paul instructs in 1 Timothy 2 and uh, ways that do not carry pastoral authority. We have gone over the last few years, we've literally gone through our whole staff structure here at the Summit Church and asked about every position. Is this a position that we've just sort of, you know, naturally, traditionally just look for a guy in when really we ought to be open to people of either gender? And are we seeking to platform women in places of leadership um, in ways in, in these places where they don't necessarily have to carry pastoral or elder authority in that position? So we got a lot of women here now leading in very key ways. Of course, we got Leslie Hildreth and her team who leads our women's ministries. But there's also Bonnie Shrum who was on our executive team and oversees all organizational leadership here at the Summit Church. There's Lindsay Williams who is over all of of our HR department. There's Lori Francis who now directs all of our sending, both, both domestic and international. There's Dana Leach who directs all of my external ministries at the church. We have campus ministry directors like Alex Lewis and Kelsey and Rima who oversee the strategy and the execution of ministries at their campuses. There are numerous women counselors. There are numerous women ministry leaders, numerous spiritual women spiritual formation leaders, just to name a few. Furthermore, we've had to ask ourselves that same uncomfortable question I alluded to at the beginning, and that is, at the Summit Church, have we been as committed to empowering our daughters as we have our sons? You see, if you're a guy here and you want to go into ministry, we got a pipeline for you. It's easy. Man, it's halfway out your mouth and we got you in an internship and a program to help develop and develop that gift and get you into ministry. Has that existed as well for our daughters? And the answer has been, no, it hasn't been. And we are working, have been working to, to correct that. We have done all of this while seeking not to minimize, but rather to celebrate the distinctive role that God has given to men and women. Now, listen, complementarianism is not a restrictive box to be checked. Complementarianism is a beautiful doctrine to be celebrated. Celebrated because God wove it into creation for the flourishing of creation. God reveals the beauty of his image through these differences. We know that God gave the the, the woman insight, an insight into people, a relational sensitivity and connectivity that makes the church a better place, makes the world a better place, certainly makes the home a better place. That's part of what God was referring to when he called the woman the helper. Right? That's not a diminutive term. People tend to think that like helper, like, oh, you know, she made copies and got coffee and held the extra tools while he did the real work. You know, the only other being in all of scripture who is referred to as the helper is God himself. Right? So it's not a diminutive term. God was indicating that like him, she would make the home home. She would establish the community. She would make the church a church. 
Of course, one of the the clearest places we see that manifested is in the home in her capacity as mother. Now, let me just say something here. God does not call all women to be mothers. And I point that out because some ladies believe that they can't live full lives if they don't become mothers. But that's just not true. Ladies, you are first and foremost, not a mother, you're first and foremost a follower of Jesus. And that means that you can be fulfilled by doing whatever it is that he's called you to do. But I also know that God has called a lot of you to be actual mothers in the home. And what I need you to realize is what a beautiful and lofty calling that is. And I point that out, not to get too much into the culture wars, but I point that out because we live in a culture that constantly berates and belittles women who give themselves to the calling of motherhood, telling them that just mothering is a wasting of their potential and it's beneath them and that it's somehow an insult to all of womanhood by doing that. That's not true either. As I will show you at the end, one of the highest and loftiest things that you can give yourself to is the beautiful role of mothering. The point that I'm trying to make here in this first point is simply, women have always played a crucial role in God's kingdom. And that's proven in a very odd time when men literally did everything, God raised up two women to do something incredible and important. And he was showing that they have a crucial role in God's kingdom. Today, we know the church will never be healthy and the church will never thrive until both our sons and daughters are thriving within it. In fact, if you'll let me kind of take off the pastor hat for just a minute, put on the president of the SBC hat, I'll tell you that one of the things that has made the evangelical church in the West suffer is that too often we've only had one kind of perspective at the leadership table. You know, we don't need diversity in leadership just for a good photo op or just because it's good PR. We know we need diversity in leadership, whether we're talking about diversity of race, whether we're talking about diversity of gender. Um, We know we need that because God puts into his body people of different backgrounds who bring different perspectives to situations. And those different perspectives can show us how to more fully and faithfully apply scripture and keep us from many of our blind spots. In fact, I can't help but wonder if this sexual abuse crisis that now plagues the church might have been avoided or at least mitigated if more of those sitting around the table in positions of influence had experienced knowing what it's like to be vulnerable, knowing what it's like to have your voice silenced. Part of the problem is that the only ones who are there are are, are part of the privileged group. And that means they're they're not as sensitive to to certain things because they don't ask the same questions. I'll tell you in my role as president of the SVC, one of my main tasks as president is appointing um, committee members who appoint trustees who lead and direct the institutions, the seminaries and the mission boards, which is probably way more about Baptist polity than you'd ever wanna know. Um, But that's just the main place that I um, would exert influence. And in the years uh, before the last, I don't know, however you go back, uh, on the average year, 95% of all the appointees were white males from the South. Okay, now, okay, again, I'm white male from the South, so I'm not hating on anybody, okay? So, but, but of the appointments that I've made this year, two thirds of them have either been women or a person of color, two thirds of them. I do that for two reasons, okay? Um, I do have two reasons. One, that really is the future of the church in the United States. I, already 20% of the membership of the Southern Baptist Convention is non-Anglo, 20%. Of the churches that the Southern Baptist Convention planted last year, get this, 63% of them were, 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 were planted by a lead pastor who was not a white male. That shows you, not, not, it was non-Anglo. All the pastors were, 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 were men of color. That shows you what the future is like. 
And the other reason is because we need the wisdom of that group as we face an increasingly changing United States. Right, this is not some act of generosity. We're like, okay, we've been at the you know, table for too long. We need to share this and as an act of generosity. We need the wisdom of our brothers and sisters of color. We need wisdom of, of all the body of Christ um, if we are going to be able to navigate and see the kingdom of God surge forward in the generation to come. And so we know that God equips with men and women. We know that he puts diversity into his body and he does so as a gift because the body of Christ is richer and better when all those different um, voices are speaking when it's, than when it's just one. All right, the other side of this, here's point number two, lesson number two. We see that when men fail to lead, the people suffer. When men fail to lead, the people suffer. This is the flip side of that. Deborah says in chapter five, which again is her like spoken word celebrating the victory of chapter four. She says, verse two, when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, well, praise the Lord. Then in verse 13, Deborah begins to list out, follow this, the various tribes who stepped up to fight and those who didn't. She says, for example, from the tribe of Ephraim, they came in droves. From the tribe of Issachar, the faithful followed us. In verse 18, the people from Zebulun risked their very lives for the battle. Verse 17, however, she laments, but Gilead, the tribe of Gilead remained in Jordan and Dan, the tribe of Dan, they lingered back by the ships. Since my first point was directed primarily toward women, let me direct this next one specifically toward the men, but I'll make it really brief because it's Mother's Day, okay? We got a lot of men hanging back by the ships when they ought to be out in the fight. You know, Genesis 3 seems to indicate that the original sin that happened in the Garden of Eden happened at least in part because of a passivity on the part of the man to take the lead. Here's why I say that. Genesis 3 says that when the serpent came up to tempt Eve with the forbidden fruit, it says that Adam was with her. The way with her is written in Hebrew means with her like standing right beside her. It doesn't mean he was back over there, you know, barbecuing, you know, killing and grilling or anything like that. He was right there with her, just standing there with her, okay? Now, God had assigned Adam the responsibility to lead and protect his wife. Tony Evans, who I've quoted the last two or three weeks here at the Summit Church, uh, he says, what should have happened right there is all of a sudden when the, the serpent tempted Eve, Adam should have stepped out of the shadows and been like, excuse me, Mr. Snake, what are you doing talking to my wife? We were just on our way to go over and eat at the tree of life. We are not gonna eat from this forbidden tree and that should have been the end of it. Human history would have been a lot different. Instead, Adam hangs back and lets her make the decision. You know why he does that? Remember what God had said, the day that you eat of that, you will surely die. So here's Adam. Wonder what's about to happen here. And when she takes a bite of that, if she drops dead, I'll know better, right? And if she doesn't drop dead, well, maybe God wasn't serious and then I should eat. So he let her take the lead and he sat back instead of going forward in leadership You see, the great temptation for men from Adam all the way forward, the great temptation for men is not to do evil. The greatest temptation for men is to sit back and do nothing. We got a lot of men in the church who are not bad guys. They're just hanging back by the ships when they ought to be out leading in a fight. Complementarian couch potatoes, you might call them. Uh, You know, dudes and bros when what we need are men, courageous men who are gonna lead out. Give you just one example. The International Mission Board, which is one of the agencies through which we send a lot of our missionaries, says that for volunteers to go to the hard places in the world, like closed countries, difficult places to get the gospel, get this, female applicants outnumber male applicants to go to those places four to one, four to one. I mean, thank God for the women, but where are the men? Or to bring it even closer to home, of the 250 summit members that we have overseas on one of our church planning teams, 250 members, summit members overseas, 60% of them are in families. 30% of them are single women. 
and only 10% are single men. Two things you guys should take away from that. First, if you want to know where to meet single women at the Summit Church, you should go to the mission field, okay? That's just, that's free for me right now. But secondly, man, it's time for you to step up. When the princes lead, says Deborah, people praise the Lord. But when the princes abdicate their duties, the people suffer. We got to have more men leading in the home. We have to have more men leading in the fight against injustice. Men who show the same zeal in raising their children and fighting for their marriages that they do in building their careers. I've told you, lamented to you before that if most men showed the same initiative and engagement at their jobs that they do in their homes, if they showed as much interaction and enthusiasm in the boardroom as they do around the dinner table, you'd have been fired a long time ago. Fathers, before God, your greatest ministry is in the home. But a lot of us aren't acting like that. You get home and feel like, well, that's her time. I'm just here to rest and I'm on autopilot. Most guys feel like, I've told you, most guys feel like they're good dads if they provide food and shelter for their families. Possums provide food and shelter for their families. Is that really the bar that we've now set for manhood? Right? We need a generation of men who will step up and say, I'll take the lead like I'm supposed to. It's like Kevin DeYoung says, complementarianism is not about telling women to sit down. It's about telling men to step up which leads me to the third observation from the story. And some of you feel like this might be not totally related, but hopefully I'll show you at the end how it is. Number three, we see from this story that God curses spectators. God curses spectators. As Deborah laments those who sat on the sidelines of the battle, she comes to a crescendo in verse 23. Curse morose, said the angel of the Lord. Curses people bitterly because they didn't come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. I, I, I read that word cursed and I'm like, cursed? Why are they being cursed? What evil thing had they done? They didn't say they, you know, they hung back and smoked weed and raided everybody's tents while they were out in the battle. They didn't say they did anything evil. It just says they did nothing. You want to know why they didn't do anything? Pull out your ancient map of Israel and look, and you'll see that the people of Moroz and the people of Dan that didn't show up, they didn't show up because it wasn't their land that was threatened. Sisera's army was threatening somebody else's land. And so they hung back and let other people fight the battle because Sisera's advance didn't directly affect them. But you see that God curses spectators because when something happens to one part of the body of Christ, it's the responsibility of all the body of Christ. You see, when it comes to questions like racial justice, gender justice, responding to abuse charges or what have you, there has often been a malaise in the church in large part because the injustice did not directly affect those of us who were sitting in places of privilege. Like Morose, it didn't directly affect our tribe. The church in the West in various generations has been slow, far too slow to champion the equality and the dignity of the vulnerable. We have not been as diligent when it comes to sexual abuse responding to those things because we weren't the ones affected directly. Some of us even look back in history and we say, how could some of our faith ancestors, how could some of our faith ancestors have have been silent about or even been complicit with slavery? How could a large majority of conservative Bible-believing Christians, how could they have just sat on the sidelines in something as important as, as civil rights? And I think for the most part, you gotta conclude it was because they didn't think that it directly affected them, at least in the short run. And so they just didn't think that much about it. Like Dan, like Morose, they sat back by the ships when they should have been out in the fight. You see, Paul in the book of Galatians tells us that following Jesus means bearing each other's burdens, carrying one another's burdens, he says, because in that way, that's how you become like Jesus. 
What that means is that for those of us following Jesus, we will care as much about injustices happening to others as we do injustices happening to us or to our people. Y'all listen, advocacy for the other has characterized every generation of faithful Christians and has always been characteristic of the church in times when it flourished and grew. For example, in the first century, we have this great letter, a copy of a great letter written by Emperor Julian, the Roman emperor who was leading in the persecution of Christians. He wrote a letter to one of his governors complaining about how quickly the Christian movement was growing. And here's what he said. The foolish Galileans, that's what his name for Christians was because they followed Jesus of Galilee. The foolish Galileans, we can't stop them growing. They multiply like, like mice and vermin. He said, and the reason is because they take care not only of their own poor, they take care of everybody else's poor as well. It wasn't just the injustices happening to them they cared about. They seemed to care about everybody. A distinguishing mark of Jesus' followers is that they cry out against injustices that don't directly affect them. Y'all, is it really that remarkable when we cry out against injustices that affect us? Is it, I mean, I know it's, we should do it, but is it really that remarkable? I mean, to borrow a phrase from Jesus, even Gentiles do that. Everybody speaks out against injustices when it affects them. What is a mark of Jesus' followers is when you take on the burdens of others in the body of Christ and you cry out for their injustices as if they were happening to you. Where are those in the majority culture today speaking up for the unique challenges faced by minorities in our culture? Where are the megachurch pastors speaking up for the abused? Where have they been? I mean, we know that sexual abuse disproportionately affects women. Where are the men speaking out on it? Where are the Christians lamenting and repudiating violence or any discriminations against Muslims or Jews in our country? I'm always moved when I see black Christian leaders speaking up on behalf of the unborn. Where are the white Southern Christians speaking up for the dignity of immigrants? Yo, I'm not saying that all Christians have to endorse one specific immigration policy. I mean, as with many policies, it's the issues surrounding that are really complex and there's certainly room for disagreement among Christians. But I do know that we can agree that in any policy, immigrants ought to be treated as men and women made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and compassion. And we means that when we are a part of the body of Christ, we care about injustices happening around us as if they were happening to us. And we know that God curses spectators because when it affects one part of the body, it affects all parts. All right, I got one final insight from this passage I wanna draw out because I think it gives a special word of encouragement, especially for mothers, but really anybody engaged in the kingdom of God, but, but especially for you mothers. Number four, number four, God does his greatest work through simple acts of obedience. Y'all throughout the book of Judges, we see time and time again that God brings down the most powerful tyrants through weak instruments, just doing his bidding. You, you've got in, in Judges a series of, of weak judges who get progressively weaker. You've got left-handed Ehud. Now, I know in our day, we think left-handedness is awesome. And if you're left-handed, I think that's amazing. But in those days, left-handedness meant inferior in terms of military and athletics. Don't hate on me. I'm just telling you that's the way it was, okay? Um, that's the way they saw it. So left-handed Ehud has already got a disadvantage. Then you got a woman and you know how they would have seen a, a woman as in, in that role. And then you've got Gideon who goes from an army of 32,000, God reduces it down to 300. Then you got the next is Samson. He's like a one-man army. Right? What God is showing you in the book of Judges, by the way, in this story, you got a, a, a wife with a tent peg, which don't think like four, you know, her, her big hammer. This is like um, a tent peg was like a common household item, like a frying pan. 
This battle was won by a woman with a frying pan. It's basically what you're supposed to take away from this. The point that the writer of Judges is making is God to do his greatest work has never needed any ability. He only needs availability of his people. He, over, uh, he overturns unjust world systems. He does his greatest work through weak people just walking in obedience. That's what he does. You see, Judges was written to prepare Israel for Jesus. And see, that's why commentators point out that the progression in Judges is from the strong to the weak. You start out in the book of Judges with Joshua. Joshua is like a man's man. Okay, that's like the, you know, that's the, he's the, um, he, he's the Nicholas Cage of the Old Testament. He is like, he is like the ultimate military leader, right? He's just a big army. Then you start getting weaker and you go Ehud, then you go Deborah, then you go Gideon, and you go Sam, and you're getting weaker until the last one in this legacy actually comes to the first part of 1 Samuel, which is the book after Judges, um, is David. King David, who wins the battle, how? He walks out as a teenager, right, with a leather strap. He's a shepherd and strikes down the giant Goliath while all the army of Israel sits like a bunch of cowards on the sidelines. And you know what God was teaching them? The ultimate battle, the ultimate victory is not gonna be won by you through your might. It's gonna be won by a simple person, Jesus, who's gonna follow me in obedience and his obedience is not gonna take him to a place of triumph. He's not gonna come with a band of angels. He's gonna die in weakness in obedience to me on the cross. And I'm gonna use that to destroy the power of death and hell. And in the same way, I'm gonna work through you, not through mighty displays of power. I'm gonna work through you through simple acts of obedience. You see, it's hard to think of a principle more applicable to motherhood than that one. Because motherhood is a lot of mundane, simple, at least mundane feeling task, is it not? I mean, it's hard to get more mundane than changing diapers. It's hard to get more mundane than getting the kids up and ready for school every day. It's hard to get more mundane than running that after-school taxi service. It seems like it never ends. Trying to convince your kids that Cheetos and Pop-Tarts do not a balanced diet makes. That's the battle in our house, at least. I'm also guessing that for a lot of you mothers stepping into that role, especially if you're a new mom, has made you feel more ill-equipped than ever, right? <laughs> because I'll just go ahead and say it, you know, parenting's hard. And I know every generation says this and you older people roll, up, roll your eyes when we say this, but I think it's harder today than it was when I was a kid. I think there's a lot of other stuff going on there. And like me, a lot of you mothers were probably distraught when they kicked you out of the hospital after that first kid, which is, I, they've got to work. If you work in the hospital, can you please work on this? Um, that, that transition point where you go from three days of awesome, your first kid, you got nurses coming in all the time, like, what do you need? What can I get you? Let me take the baby and you guys relax. And you're like, this is amazing. And then they just show up one day about noon, like, all right, get out. And I'm like, go where? And I'm like, just get out, take your baby home. I'm like, are you coming with me? No. I, do I get an instruction manual? Like first thing to do? And then I get, nope, it's pretty much on you now. And you go home and you're like, what do I do? The baby doesn't come with an instruction manual. And then you got the opposite problem, moms, because I've been on this side too, not as a mom, but as a dad, you got everybody and their brother that has the perfect parenting technique. And you don't follow this, your kids will worship Satan and they'll become mass murderers. And you got to do it this way. And, and you just feel overwhelmed and it feels suffocating. Y'all, what Jesus gives to you is not like, okay, here's the Bible. Here's your perfect parenting manual. Do it right. Yeah, the Bible has helpful things in it, very important things about parenting. But Jesus' main message to you is not, here's how to do it and succeed. His main message is walk in simple obedience and let me fight the battle for your kid's heart. Why don't you let me do the work in your heart? Because you can't do it. You just obey me and let me do it. Again, God does his greatest work, whether we're talking about raising children or bringing down armies through simple acts of obedience. And I really, really want that to be an encouragement to those of you who are in the toddler trenches, because I know that what you're doing doesn't feel to you like an honor right now. But here's how I think about it. 
Who was the first person who ever taught me that love was unconditional? I mean, I stand up here and I talk about it. It's an important part of our theology. But when I talk about unconditional love, you want to know whose love for me taught me what unconditional love actually looked and felt like? Who was it that showed me that I could come to her at whatever hour of the night with whatever problem I had? And she would get up, whether the problem was large or small, and make sure that I was taken care of. Who was it that walked me through my first breakup? Who did I run home to after school and I'd had a terrible day and people had criticized me and attacked me and I was doubting myself? Whose voice did I most need to hear when somebody had been unkind to me? Who was it that always believed the best about me and believed I had a future when I had messed everything up and when other people had given up on me? Who was one of the only three people in the whole world who has actually read my PhD dissertation? By the way, the only other two are me and the guy who graded it. The only other human on the earth who has read it is my mom. The answer to all of those questions was my mom as it was for many of you. And you know, those moments shaped me in profound ways, even though most of those moments were hidden and private and seemingly very mundane. One guy says it this way, almost anything in life that truly matters will be accomplished through small, mostly overlooked things done over a long period of time. Most of us in this room, most of us at our campuses have been the beneficiaries of that kind of humble obedience from our moms. And moms, I want you to hear me. Sacrifice and compassion done with hiddenness and humility is never wasted in God's kingdom. Not because that's the path of Jesus who through humbleness and humility and sacrifice and compassion went to a point of weakness and obedience on the cross. And God used that to destroy the powers of death and hell. That's how God does his best work. So on this Mother's Day, I wanna honor the mothers here. I wanna honor you mothers in the home and I wanna honor the spiritual mothers. I wanna honor you by telling you that your role matters. Yours is a crucial part of God's kingdom. It is a beautiful dimension of his creation and an indispensable component of his mission. Even more than that, I wanna thank you for being a reflection of Christ. You were the very first picture that I had of God's love. And that picture is so much clearer in my heart now because of the way that you lived it out. I want you to be encouraged because God uses simple obedience to change the world. It's all been true. In fact, Paul emphasizes that through one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. And I want to use this to bring us to a close. It's an odd verse to close on, I admit, but it's so misunderstood and it so perfectly encapsulate what, what we're trying to say here from Judges. All right, everybody gets this wrong. First Timothy 2, Paul, First Timothy 2, Paul is explaining why God appointed men to be the pastor elders in the church. He explains that in 1 Timothy 2. And then he puts in this verse at the end that everybody kind of scratches their head like, what did he just, what? But she, the woman, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness. And you read that and you're like, what? Like, I thought women were saved by grace through faith, just like men. Well, certainly that's what Paul teaches. So did Paul contradict himself? Well, of course not. Well, people say, well, that's just why you can't take the Bible literally because it says that. She's not saved through childbearing. Well, that's because you're not reading it right. In, in Greek, in Greek, not in English, there's a definite article right here in front of childbearing, which means that one of the ways you could translate this verse is, she will be saved through the childbirth. Watch this. What Paul was saying was, hey, I, I realize that in the church, God appointed men to be the pastor elders, but ladies, I want you to remember the fact that God brought salvation into the world through a woman who went through the pains of labor. He brought salvation into the world through the mundane task of changing diapers because that woman then 
took this baby and she began to raise him. Her name was Mary and his name was Jesus. And she taught him how to eat with a spoon and she taught him how to dress himself and she got him ready for school and made sure he got there on time. And that baby grew up and he saved the world. God brought salvation to the world through a very simple task. So you be encouraged. You be encouraged because that's how God continues to do his greatest work. His greatest work doesn't come through lofty positions of leadership. His greatest work is accomplished through humble obedience, whether we're talking about Jesus going to the cross or whether we're gonna talk about Mary who is raising a baby. Paul is using that to remind all of us that it is humble, sacrificial obedience that God uses to do his greatest work. God has not called every woman in here to be a mother. And there's a lot of us and guys who don't even have that possibility, but God has called all of us to obedience. He's called all of us to obedience. And so the question, for all of us on this Mother's Day is where is he calling you? Where is he calling you to obey? Because that simple obedience is how God wants to change your world. And that's what he's calling you to. Why don't you bow your heads at all of our campuses, if you would, bow your heads. That's our question. Where is he calling you to simple obedience? Maybe it's in this task of mothering. Maybe you're in the toddler trenches. Maybe it's in the task of fathering. Maybe it's through going and working at an unfulfilling job, but you're doing it faithfully to God's glory. Maybe it's through sharing Christ with somebody. Maybe it's not giving up in prayer. I don't know what it is, but the Holy Spirit is calling you to simple obedience. He's like, I don't need you to fight this battle. I'm the one who fights the battle. I just need you to obey me. My greatest work comes through humble obedience. Father, keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our hearts surrendered and humble because you do your greatest work through humble obedience. We believe that. We know it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen.